a fairly talkative person. It's hard to imagine, I know. My wife, though not as talkative as me, can be also quite talkative. Our sons, they like, as Henry Higgins said, an atmosphere as quiet as an undiscovered tomb. Unfortunately, I have two little grandsons, unfortunately for them, who cannot stop yakking. The youngest, our 18-month-old grandson, has started to learn new words, and he tries them out constantly. Um, This, not yesterday, but the day before, his grandmother made the mistake of saying, Oh my goodness, in front of him. For the next 10 minutes, he said, Oh my goodness, oh my goodness, oh my goodness. And with his hands like that, because that's what she had done. Oh my goodness. And finally, about five minutes into this, he took her by the face and he pulled her face up next to him and he said, Oh my goodness. Having completed the the clear recitation of it for about 10 minutes, he then wandered around the house for the next 10 minutes saying to anyone who would listen, Oh my goodness! Now as a talkative grandfather of this 18-month-old midget version of myself, I was just enthralled. His son, the lover of the atmosphere, as quiet as an undiscovered tomb, would have liked for him to stop at about 30 seconds. My other grandson, the other very talkative one with the quiet, loving father, has learned to tell stories, very imaginative stories, stories populated with a whole group of imaginary friends, the lead character of who is of, of which is named Nacho. And Nacho can do anything. Nacho might be a child. Nacho might be conquering the continent of Africa. Nacho can do anything and everything. And once he starts a story, it could go for 10 minutes. And it's just a continuous rain of thought strung out along the adventures of Nacho that you can, he doesn't know, I'm sure, know where it's going when he starts. And all you can do is watch in fascination as it rambles and roams and wanders around in an almost continuous, hardly a breathtaking stream. For his grandfather, who says, that's a preacher. This is entertaining. For his father, who loves an atmosphere as quiet as an undiscovered tomb, the entertainment value is lost after about the first minute or so. We love those first words of children. Remember when you were listening for those first understandable words? You probably even know which ones your kid might have learned first. You may have written it down in their baby book. And whatever that was. And as you were writing it down, it doesn't really matter what it was. If your child's first word was about a, a bodily function, you still wrote it down and thought it was cute. Today we're going to talk about the messianic first words. Before we do, I have a friend who's going to come and read for me. Come on, Mia. Jesus' parents went to Jerusalem every year at the Feast of Passover. And when he, what, when he, was, tw- when he was 12 years old, he went, to, he went up to Jerusalem according to the custom of the feast when they had finished the days of 
as they returned, the boy Jesus lingered behind in Jerusalem. And, and Joseph and his mother did not know it, but supposing him to have been in the company, they went a day's journey and saw him uh, among? among their relatives and a court acquaintances. acquaintances. And some when they did not find him in rent they returned. They returned to Jerusalem seeking him. No now now so it was that after three days they found him in the temple seeking seating in the midst of the teachers both listening to them and asking him them questions. Luke two forty one to forty six. Thank you very much. Amen. Good job, yeah. Yeah, you can you can do that. I don't know if you're enjoying this, but I'm enjoying a lot hearing the youngest members of our family read to us from the scriptures week to week. Um, thank you, Mia. We are going to be in Luke chapter 2 this morning. So if you have your Bible or your device with you and you want to open up and follow along in the story, we're in Luke chapter 2. Um, as we do, we are going to be really looking from verse 40 to verse 52. But I want you to think about this in terms of the parents and the fact that these parents were given stewardship of the Son of God. And they knew it. So we talk about the Christmas story a lot. We talk about a lot of the cool things that are going on in the Christmas story. And they're great. They're really great. But we don't often think too much about this next story. It is not really a Christmas story. It happens a dozen years or so later. But... But it says so much about this experience and what it must have been like to be the parents of Jesus. Many of you are probably familiar with it. The story has this, this first comment from the Messiah right within it. The first words of Jesus are recorded by Luke. The, the first messianic words, the first words that we get to take from the 12-year-old Jesus who is just freshly beginning to discover who he is separate from his parents. Remember that this is the age when you begin to differentiate from your parents. Those of you who have parented teenagers, you know that this is when they get a little cranky and hard to deal with and they start trying to push you aside and do their own thing. You know, they, they try this out when they're real little, two or three years old. They start the I do it thing. I'll do it. I, they, some of them can barely say it, but they want to still do it. I'll tie my own shoes and <laughs> think, yeah, likely story. No, I'll do that. I'll do it. I'll do it. They want to take the knife, cut their own food. And you're like, no, 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 you're going to cut off a finger. We don't want that to happen, but they want to do it. Well, when they get to be 12, 13, 14, as they begin to say, look, I am now, I love this idea. I love this expression from 12, 13 and 14 year olds. I am now fully independent and take care of myself. I used to love teaching early teens at camp meeting because I had all these kids who really believe that they were ready to just take over. And it was just a fun experience to watch as they discovered things and learned things. And uh, it was always entertaining to me and always great, really a great fun time. Jesus is entering that stage, early teen. Jesus is 12 years old when we get to this point in the story. Now, being that this is Jesus, I'm pretty sure we're not dealing with the same trouble that a lot of 12 and 13 and 14 year olds have. But there seems to be a discovery of himself happening at this moment, which we'll note. But these are the first words. Did you not know that I must be about my father's business? The first thing he says to his parents, why were you looking for me? 
Didn't you know that I would have to be about my father's business? Wasn't it obvious to everybody where I would be found? Wouldn't that be clear to you where you should look for me? Didn't you know I would be about my father's business? Not, I don't think, taken as an offense by Joseph, but definitely bringing clarity to their relationship. So as we tackle and talk a little bit about this, I want to invite you to pray with me. Father, we lay before you our desire to follow you and be led by your spirit as we discuss your word today. In Jesus' name, amen. This story is surrounded by two statements about Jesus' sort of health. These are sort of Jesus' checkup statements. Physical, spiritual, etc. health statements. The ch- this is verse 40. There the child grew up, there being Nazareth. The child grew up healthy and strong. He was filled with wisdom and God's favor was on him. So while Jesus has moved back to Nazareth, he's gone to Egypt, he's come back, he ends up in Nazareth, and now he's growing up. He's growing up healthy and strong. Is that good news about Jesus? Yeah, you would want the baby Jesus to grow up healthy and strong. As, is, as they're later recording his life, their description of the first 12 years is, well, he was off there and then he was over here and, and he grew up and he was healthy and strong and he was filled with wisdom and God's favor was on him. So, kid did well. And then a story that we're about to, to unpack happens. And at the end of that story, we get another checkup statement. So now he's gone back home. And it says on this other checkup statement, And Jesus increased in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. This is one we quote a lot. And Jesus increased with wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. Which was what you would hope would happen to your teenage kid, right? Wouldn't you like to just quote that to them every morning? As they're growing up from the time they, you know, hit puberty on until they are off to college. And Jesus grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and man. Oh Lord, may this be the blessing of my child today. And just let him go off to school. That's what the description of, the, of Jesus' checkup in his teen years were. In the intervening page, in the intervening couple of paragraphs, we have this story about Jesus. Now the story begins by telling us that Mary and Joseph regularly go to Passover. Do you know why? Because that's what was required of the Jewish males. Now the females came as an addition to the party, especially at Passover, because there's a lot of things that were family-oriented at Passover. And so Jesus, this particular year, gets to come. And it says when Jesus was 12 years old, according to the regulations of the feast, they brought Jesus. So what the deal was, was when you became 12, you were considered now part of the adult world and you could take part in these things. And so this trip to Jerusalem for Jesus was his first probably engagement with the Passover at Jerusalem. And so his first trip, three times a year, the men were supposed to go to Jerusalem for special ceremonies like this. And this was one. And Jesus goes to what appears to be his first Passover experience. So I want you to imagine what this was like for Jesus. Jesus is that 12-year-old. He's beginning to differentiate. His brain is brain chemistry is changing. His body chemistry is changing. He's starting to think life different, of life differently. He's starting to put big picture issues together. You know what it's like. If you're that age group, if you're that early teen age group, you know that you're starting to to pull ideas together and make different ideas. You're beginning to think things through for yourself in a different way, probably a way you haven't before. It's Lights are starting to come on for you that weren't on before. There was a switch. Someone had told you this, this truth or this information, but you hadn't really pulled it together and made a, true, a full story at it. You had a bit of information and a bit of information and a bit of information. But when that bit, those bits come together and the puzzle starts to fill out for you, You start understanding the world differently. And that's really what your teenage years are about. So if you're in the midst of all that teenage stuff and you're feeling some personal turmoil about it, you're feeling kind of that struggle within yourself, you're supposed to be in this discovery mode. That's your landing place right now. It's a good place. It's the right place. But just take some guidance from your parents as you go through it. But you're supposed to be pulling all these pieces together. You're supposed to be saying to yourself every once in a while, I don't think I believe this the same way my parents do. Okay? That's an okay thing for you to do. What you should say at that point is my is not my parents are dumb. 
Believe me, they didn't overnight become dumb. What you should be saying at that point is, Mom, Dad, why do you think such and such is true? Why do you believe this in this particular way? Because I think this. And instead of just assuming they don't know what they're talking about, actually ask. Engage them in a conversation. You might find that they have thought this through for a while. You'll almost certainly find they've thought this through for a while. And they haven't come to this conclusion haphazardly. They've actually been walking through it. But if you're in that teenage struggle time and you're going, Oh my goodness, I got this idea and that idea and this idea. And I don't know how they all fit together. Or they fit together and they don't make sense to the way other people look at them. That's okay. That's actually a really good thing. It's what should be happening to you. And it should continue to happen to you for a while now. As you develop your own understanding. As you develop your own faith. As you develop your own values. At the other end of this thing, you should have kind of a package of understanding that you take forward. That you begin to apply to how I'm going to live my life. The decisions I'm going to make as I marry. The decisions I'm going to make as I pick a career. The decisions I'm going to make as I grow up. Those are the pieces you're picking out right now and sort of putting in place. Make sense? You're kind of building the library for your future reference. Jesus is in that mode at this moment. When he arrives at the temple, he sees all of these things. But he sees all of these things that are happening. Animals are being sacrificed. Great numbers of animals are being sacrificed. Josephus estimates three million people come to Jerusalem for the Passover. If every family is a family of ten, which would be a large family, how many animals is that? If every family... As a family of 10 and takes one animal, how many are we talking about? If you drop a zero from 3 million. What are we talking about? Mathematics? Okay, accountants, please speak up. 300,000. You dropped a zero, that's your 300. So 300,000 animals are being sacrificed. Okay? So it's, it's, it's a massive thing that's going on. As Jesus would enter the temple precincts on the Passover, there's a line of people just going to the priests and the Levites to have this ritual sacrifice of the Passover lamb made and to walk through a certain process with them. And Levite is, is associated with another Levite who goes to another corner of the, of the, of, of the temple grounds. There was a big wall along one side of, of, Sort of an organized, boy, I hate to use this term. I think of a better one. An organized animal dismemberment place. I, I hate to call it a butcher shop. It's kind of what it is. They're in there and they're, they're doing what has to be done so these animals can be prepared for the family to go home and then take the animal as their own, as their food, etc. That's all part of the Passover. But as Jesus is walking, watching all of this, there's a, a light coming on, a piece of information that he's read in the Old Testament, a piece of information he's been told by his parents, a piece of, a couple pieces of information are starting to fit together and Jesus is saying, oh, wait, this is, the Passover lamb. And Isaiah says that there will be a lamb of God. I think that's me. So as he watches the sacrifices of the lambs, and he watches the daily and the morning and the evening, and he watches the sin offerings, he watches with the interest of someone that that symbol points to. And as he engages and thinks and processes, he's pulling these pieces together in a new understanding of his own identity. And as Jesus' identity begins to unfold to him, the temple precincts become a fascinating place. And he wanders around. Think of 12-year-old walking around, taking it all in, looking at it, trying to understand it watching what people are doing, listening to what people are saying, hearing people in the precincts of the temple talking about the Passover, talking about the sacrifice, talking about the scriptures, quoting. This is a, this is a great time in these, 
in these centuries, intervening centuries between the Babylonian captivity and the first century, the Jewish people are in a regular practice of communicating bits and pieces and discussing bits and pieces of scripture, trying to understand how they apply in their life. It would be, it would be uncanny for them not to be doing it right there in the sanctuary precincts. In fact, the edges of the sanctuary where the, where those long hallways, colonnades were, were special places for people to go and gather for this purpose. So imagine Jesus wandering through these beautiful, Greek colonnades as they Roman Greek built by Hebrews. You pick it out. He's walking along through these colonnades as he's watching and listening to people, hearing people talk and say things about the Passover and about the sacrifice. And questions are being asked about what this means and what it could be and how soon the Messiah will come. And Daniel seems to indicate and and it appears that he should be. And and the pieces and bits and things that are being said. Oh, I heard a rumor about some shepherds in Bethlehem who claim to have seen the Messiah. Well, that was years ago. And people just keep working this thing and talking about it. He's picking up pieces and pieces and pieces. And he's putting together the little puzzle. And he's infilling a picture that looks like him. And somehow he finds his way into the place set aside at the edge of the temple complex. Rooms specifically for leaders and theologians to gather and talk about God. And he wanders in there. You know, some of us at certain ages didn't understand no trespassing. And Jesus wanders in and he sits himself down. And he listens. And as he sits and he listens, the story, the conversation, the depth of information is fascinating to him. He's drawn into the discussion that they're having. The, the, the little debates that they're, dis- that they're, that are going back and forth. This one thinks that and that one thinks this. Hillel and Gamaliel are probably in the room. They're still alive at this point, we think. And the discussions going back and forth between these very, very highly educated people. Deeply, deeply into the scriptures. Rabbis of national renown. These are like superstar trading card rabbis. And these guys are talking. And Jesus is listening. Some point along through the conversation, he asks a question. You know, that, that question that rises up that you just can't keep down. It's worrying. It's think, it's, it's, it's sort of grinding away at you. It's working its way through your mind and you, you're not hearing an answer. Nobody's answering the question, but you want the question to be answered. And so they seem to ask questions and he knows he's not supposed to speak. He's a kid. He's not supposed to be involved, but he can't help himself. He puts his question out there. And it's such a powerful question. The people in the room can't believe it came from this little kid voice. I mean, unchanged yet, maybe a little crack in it because it's trying to become an adult voice, but it's still a little boy voice. And they listen, and they turn to find the little little guy who said it, this lanky, not an adult and not a child anymore, maybe a little peach fuzz growing out the sides of his face, not enough to do anything with, but just enough to threaten things to come. Kind of that skinny kid that the body's growing, but he's still got that puffy face of an eight-year-old. Chubby cheeks and broad shoulders, and none of it seems to fit together, but you can see what's coming. And they see this little face, this young man, this child, and they turn and answer his question. And he takes it in, and he weighs the answer. And it doesn't provide all of the answer he wants. So he holds back as long as he can. And he holds back and he holds back and he holds back and he, he taps his feet and he tries to listen, but he wants the follow up question. And so he asks the follow up. The follow up is just as profound as the lead question. And so the, 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 the leaders and the teachers And the rabbis in the room start to think, maybe this is some little child prodigy. Maybe this is my next student. Maybe this is the next Gamaliel or the next Hillel. And they they 
call him a little closer. And they answer the question. But this time they don't just simply answer the question. They give their answer and then they ask him a question. Jesus has been invited into the discussion with the leaders of the synagogue and the leaders of his church and the leaders of his community, political, religious leaders. Invite him into the discussion and ask him a question. He's read the scriptures. He's apparently very well versed. He studied them carefully and he answers. And the answer, sort of like an earthquake, ripples across the room as it hits their minds and they think, whoa, that was a pretty stout answer from a scrawny kid. And they're kind of interested and they're kind of amazed and a discussion ensues and he's invited into the discussion and as it moves around the room, as it bounces from one mind to the next, his mind is included in the process And they're fascinated, not just with the conversation they're having, but with the the answers that this young man's giving. And it's drawing them in. It's drawing them in. And boy, the next day he's at the temple and he's right back to the room and he's right back and he's sitting there among the leaders and he's talking again. And through the Passover service, his family's going about the business of the Passover. They've had their meal, he's been there with them. And as the post-Passover time continues and they are socializing with friends and family that they don't see very often maybe the maybe Mary and Joseph are talking to the relative in whose house they lived during Jesus very early childhood when they moved out of the stable and found some place to stay maybe they're talking to the people from Nazareth that they normally see maybe they're talking to people from down in Galilee or off on the coast but they're talking to people and they're connecting and they're having fun. And it's like camp meeting. And they're just chatting and people they haven't seen in a long time. And how are you doing? And what are your kids doing? And how, how, how are things going with your business? And lots and lots of fun conversation. And Jesus, who is a pretty good kid. Pretty independent, but good kid. Isn't really missed. Because he takes care of himself. He comes back every evening. He is where he says he's going to be, when he says he's going to be there, so they don't worry about him too much. Sometimes your dependable kids get less attention, right? And so that's Jesus. He's just dependable. And so he's off about his business, and every day he leaves after breakfast, and he goes and he hangs out with the guys, and he talks, and they're enjoying the conversation, and he's enjoying the conversation. It comes time for his family to leave And then he's off in that morning after his breakfast and he's gone to the temple. And while he's there at the temple, they're packing up, getting ready, and they leave. And they're with a big group of their family and friends headed for Nazareth, headed up north into Galilee and up the hills on top of the mountains to Nazareth into that little valley where everybody here knows each other and they know all the folks from the towns around and they've gathered together to go and it's safer to have large numbers. There are robbers and there are animals along the path that could harm you, but in a large group you feel good and you feel safe and your encampment is carefully watched. And they travel all day, assuming Jesus is with somebody there, assuming Jesus is nearby even though they can't hear his voice or see him. And that night comes, and it's time for dinner, and 12-year-old boys do not miss dinner. And he's not there. And they start worrying a little bit, but not a lot, because this is Jesus, and he's dependable. And so they start finally to, to look around. Joseph's a little annoyed. He didn't help set up camp, and he usually does. Mary's a little annoyed. He's usually right by her side making sure everything is going well with dinner and helping in any way he can. He's a very thoughtful kid. But annoyance moves to concern as they go from one camp to another. And this very large group they're traveling with asking, have you seen Jesus? No, we haven't seen him all day. Have you seen Jesus? No, we haven't seen him since we left Jerusalem. Have you seen Jesus? Haven't seen them since this morning at breakfast. And one after another, they get the same answer. We just haven't seen Jesus today. We haven't seen him all day long. And what was annoyance now becomes terror. And for the next three days, 
the family put in charge of caring for the Messiah has lost him. I don't think they waited for morning light. I think they packed up what they needed, left everything else with the caravan members, and hustled back to Jerusalem. Through the dark, it probably took them longer. As they start to arrive, probably the next morning in Jerusalem, tired, haggard, fearful, imagining all the possible scenarios. Has he been kidnapped by someone? Children are are regularly sold as slaves in foreign countries for all manner of purposes that they don't even want to think about. Has he been hurt? Did he fall into a hole somewhere? Did he run up against some Roman soldier and he's laying bleeding somewhere on the side of the road? And the scenarios, you know, you've lost your kid. You've lost sight of him even for an hour or two. And imagine all of the things that could have gone wrong in the last hour. And they get to Jerusalem and they begin to go around to the camps that were near their camps. And again, they're asking, did you see Jesus today? And everybody's saying no. And they expand the the search. They widen that path and they try to figure out any places Jesus might be off playing, caught up in something he's forgotten. And, and, And anxiety breeds terror, breeds the oh no that no one wants to think about. And the night comes, and they lay in their beds, struggling to get a little sleep. So exhausted, they do fall asleep. But very early in the morning, before the sun rises, before anyone's stirring, the little bit of sleep has gone, and they're awake, waiting for the dawn, talking about what they're going to do to try to find him today. Three million people have been here during this week. Many thousands of them are still there. Cleanup has begun to take place. The camps around, the messes people leave. People have started to come around and pick up. When they wake that morning, the first of those shifts are about the business of cleaning up. And they ask, have you guys seen a little boy about 12? This is what he looks like. He's got dimples and a pudgy face and a little bit of a little bit of brown peach fuzz. It's kind of lanky. He was wearing a mostly white linen tunic and some sandals we made for him for the trip. Have you seen him? No. They venture to go and talk to a Roman guard. Have you seen a 12-year-old boy looking for his parents? Am I supposed to watch after your sheep, lady? I don't know where your son is. Get out of here. Can't find him. The terror increases. The fear increases. The worry increases. Finally, they find their way into the temple precincts themselves. Here, the same thing is going on. There's been a lot of lambs slaughtered and there's a lot of cleanup to be done. The Levites are busily trying to get the place cleaned up and readied for service that day. People are going about sort of the normal processes, the normal things that go on in the temple. They're there early in the morning at 6 a.m. and the daily sacrifice is taking place. There are a few teachers gathering in the colonnades And they make their way through the teachers asking every single one, have you seen our son? And with every no, the anxiety grows. They finish the last steps in the colonnades and they find themselves now walking into the temple proper in the, in the intersection of the temple where women are allowed, Mary makes her way around. Did you see a little boy? The same description, the same answer, the same description, the same answer, the same description, the same answer. Joseph goes on into the court of men. Have you seen a little boy? 
Same description, same answer. It's an interesting thing. In the midst of the largest religious gathering in Israel, they lost Jesus. I just want to warn you that you can lose Jesus in a religious setting. It is as true today as it was then. They lost him physically. You can lose Jesus spiritually in a religious setting. You can do all of the religious practices right and do all the religious activities correctly and miss Jesus or lose Jesus completely. In fact, sometimes religion is the hardest place to find Jesus. Religion and spirituality are different things. Religion and spirituality are different things. But religion without spirituality is an empty thing that has no Jesus. Is the piano still on? Oh, good. Because I would know how to turn it on. You ready? This is about as good as it gets. Is that music? Some of you were graciously saying yes. I think this is a piano, it's a jazz. (laughs) Then is jazz music. That is the following question, which we will not discuss at this moment. I would argue that that's the sound of a piano, but it's not music. Religion is the sound of a spiritual walk without spirituality. It's interesting because when James tries to describe pure religion, he says pure and genuine religion in the sight of God means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. He says your religion should come out with some sort of experience where you're touching someone else, where you become less about yourself and more about others. Religion should practically see itself where it demonst- it's demonstrated in the way you touch other people's lives. But spirituality and religion both require some sort of expression, some sort of action. And you can even do spiritual activity without spirituality. You can do all the things of religion without actually having a walk with Jesus. You can miss Jesus entirely right in church, right at camp meeting. You are no more a Christian because you attend church than you are a car because you happen to hang out in your garage. We need the difference maker. You know what the difference between the sounds of a piano and a song are? The direction of a composer. Behind music, there is a composer. Behind spirituality, There is the composer, the one who's directing, the one who's guiding, the one who's speaking, the one who's leading in that relationship to make religion a spiritual thing, not just a practice. They lost Jesus at the Passover. The Passover is all about Jesus. And they lost Jesus at the... What a metaphor. 
I don't know what 2018 was like for you. Did you have trouble keeping track of Jesus this last year? Did you get caught up in some religious activities or secular activities? Did you get busy with life? Did you get into the struggles of just keeping food on the table and lose track of Jesus? Religious practice, when under the guidance of God, helps maintain that spirituality. But religious practice, for its own sake, won't do anything for your spirituality. In fact, you can lose it entirely in religious practice. Is the composer present in the music you're playing? Or... Does it feel like that brand new piano player trying to practice? One of my grandsons is learning the violin. Enough said. (laughs) There is probably no other instrument harder to listen to when it's getting its first start than the violin. At least the piano sounds like it's in tune, even if they're hitting the wrong note. If their fingers are in the wrong place on that violin, it has no room for man or beast to listen to it. I'm glad that he's learned some songs, because I can at least pick out where we're going as we're playing a song. Spirituality requires the presence of the composer, the master composer. Otherwise, it falls into empty religion and you lose Jesus at the Passover. At the end of the passage in Luke chapter 2, verses 46 and 48 to 48... Now it was after three days they found him in the temple. Oh, there's some great metaphors here that I don't have time to talk about. But you can apply them at home. I don't know that it was all of three days. I don't think we're counting 72 hours. I think we're counting the fact that they came back. They were gone a day. They came back. It was the next day. They looked all through that day. They were overnight. And in the next day, they found Jesus finally. Sometime in the next day. And they found him in the temple. In the last place they looked, which of course is always where you find the thing, because why would you look in another place after you found it? It's one of those weird statements. I found it in the last place I looked. Here's your sign. But this was truly the last place anyone would have looked for him, because what is a 12-year-old boy doing in in the study of the scholars. What is a 12-year-old boy doing hanging out with these guys? Nobody hangs out with these guys unless they're invited. This is a very elite group. And here's their 12-year-old son. Not only is he in the room, he's in the discussion. He's not sitting on the sideline listening anymore. He's right in the middle of the discussion on the cushions with the guy. They're selling, they're sharing snacks with this kid who went looking for his parents the last couple of days and they can't find him. These people are wondering what kind of parents let this kid roam off. And they're kind of watching over him. Somebody probably let him sleep at their house the last couple of days. And they're enthralled with this kid. And he's enthralled with this discussion. And the things that he's saying, imagine the seeds Jesus is planting in this group. Even as a 12-year-old. Imagine if they had run with them. What difference it would have made 20 years later. And the conversations are going round and his parents creep in the back. And both of them listen. And all who heard him were astonished. That all, by the way, includes mom and dad. Mom and dad. Has your kid ever come up up with something at the dinner table when you went, hmm, wow, you put a lot of thought into that. If you didn't, you should, 
Because sometimes we go, wow, and we're so shocked we don't even know how to respond. Those lights are coming on. Recognize them when they come on and be willing to stand in the light that they're shining. Jesus' parents are part of the all who are astonished at his understanding and his answers. And so when they saw him, they were amazed. They were terrified and now they're amazed. Ever been afraid and then found your kid? Do you remember the mix of emotions at that moment? You want to hug them and you want to strangle them all at once? Because they scared you to death. This is a three-day search for a missing child. I can imagine how I would have felt and how I would have reacted. It would have been a rough ride home for Jesus. I don't know if I would have stopped talking all the way to Nazareth. They were amazed. And so when they saw him, they were amazed. And his mother said to him, So why have you done this to us? <laughs> we have been blaming God for our absence since the garden. We lose Jesus because of our religiosity, and when we find him again, we say, Well, where did you go? Like he went somewhere. Why have you done this to us? And Jesus then gives them the answer, the one we've been seeking the whole time. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Why did you seek me? Why were you wandering around? Why have you spent the last three days asking everybody in town if they have seen me? Didn't you already know where I would be? Wasn't it obvious where you would find me? God, I don't know where you've been lately, but you've seemed to have abandoned me when I really needed you. And God smiles. And he says, I abandoned you, did I? I think you knew where to find me. Didn't you know that I must be about my father's business? And the lights turn back on for Mary and Joseph, who've lived with the Messiah for the last decade plus. They've changed his diaper. They've fed him. They've cared for him. They've nursed him back to health. They have seen this messianic child as just their kid. And now he's made it clear that they are simply caring for the Son of God. And then we are told that he grew in wisdom and stature and in favor with God and men. And that's all we hear about the next 18 years. He goes back to Nazareth. He cares for and watches out for and blesses and serves and works and helps his parents. And he studies and listens and talks and discovers more about God. And we're left with the silence. Both Jesus and his parents traveled to the big city to worship God. He found, they, he found him there and they lost him there. 
So how's, how's it been? Did you find Jesus this Christmas? Did he get lost in Macy's somewhere? Did he get lost when your visa bill came? Are you fearful that it's coming? If you are, see Dave Ramsey next Monday. It was 2018 a year when it was tough to hang on with Jesus? As he slipped away, while you were busy packing for a trip, did you forget to take him? Did you forget to see if he was there, if he was coming? Were you so busy chatting with your friends that you forgot about Jesus? Were you so busy living that you lost the meaning and the purpose for life? It is so hard to stay in that walk, in that relationship, in that connection, day after day, because so many things are crying for our attention. I want to really encourage you that he hasn't moved. He's where you left him. Going about the Father's business. Waiting to hear back from you. And he'll be happy when you show up. And you'll be amazed. And the sound of the symphony will play again. Let's pray. Father God, there are all of us, all of us are struggling in one way or another to figure out how we can maintain the walk. We're all doing battle with our confusing lives. We're all trying to stay on top when many days we're feeling like we're drowning. I pray that you would be in the center of our experience. That it would start right now for those who have wandered off. For those of us who have struggled to keep you in the mix of music, I pray that you would help us to be drawn back. That you would speak to us through the power of your Holy Spirit. That we would be called to your word hungrily every day that we will discover you speaking in the voices of others, in the service to others, and the opportunities to interact with those who love you. And we'd really like to never lose the composer of the music again. I pray for that authority to be built into our day and our life. In Jesus' name, amen.